Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and we are back after hiatus, and welcome to our new show format, a magazine-type show. Yep, we've got lots of segments, we've got interesting things we're going to talk about with food, and we're going to have interviews. I like to think of it as a department store, really, right? I like to think of it as The View. We're just doing The View. I'm going to be Whoopi Goldberg today. I want my department store metaphor. Let me have it for once. (laughs) Okay, what am I, the elevator? operator then <laughs> ladies lingerie mm, third floor you might be the janitor oh, anyway <laughs> the night watchman so anyway i'm i wonder how many people listening actually know what a department store is anyway remember that movie with james brolin where he got trapped in a department store at night but there were attack dogs in the department store no i'm in my 20s <laughs> um anyway let's get started with our first segment first up some news about us. We are negotiating a new book with our publisher, Voracious Books at Little Brown. We are through our fabulous editor, Mike Sherbin. We're getting a 34th cookbook, and it seems hard to believe 34, and that's not all, right? There's more books besides yeah, that. Well, I wrote a book before I met Mark called Frozen Drinks With or Without the Buzz. Now lamentably out of print. And in the midst of writing cookbooks, I wrote two knitting books, Knits Men Want and Boyfriend Sweaters. And you have some exciting news. Well, I yeah, I do. I have a memoir that's coming out this fall, and it has nothing to do with cooking, nothing to do with food, nothing to do with anything. If you know anything about me, you know I have a couple of other podcasts about literature. And um, What's the title of this book? I can't say. Yes, that. you can. I'm going to beep it. So if there are kids listening, it's going to be kid-friendly. Okay. The title of my memoir is Bookmarked, How the Great Works of Western Literature F***ed Up My Life. <laughs> And that is out this fall. And so with this book that we're negotiating, this cookbook with Little Brown, Voracious Books at Little Brown, this will be our 39th book, yeah, which brings up crazy. a problem or a question. Well, it is a question. How does one stay in this business for this long oh. from before the business was digital, oh. before there was an internet, before oh. there was social media? Oh. How do we do that? Well, there was a rudimentary internet in 99. I mean, Bruce and I did meet in an AOL chat room. <laughs> You've got mail. Um, and so there was a, there, I don't have to beat that, do I? No, you don't. <laughs> um, there was a rudimentary internet, but we did come over a digital divide. And publishing changed dramatically. Back in the old days, we were trying to write books that basically – uh, they basically were the Google of books. So we wrote I, the ultimate ice cream book, the ultimate party drink book, the ultimate candy book. And these books basically tried to exhaust the subject. So if you want to know anything about candy, you bought this book right. and the recipes were in alphabetical order. It basically was the Google of cookbooks. Yeah, and then we moved from there into more high-end books, more yeah. chefy style books, yeah. full color. We wrote yeah. about really interesting topics like with the first ever old goat book yeah. called Goat Meat Milk Cheese. We won a James Beard nomination for our book, Ham, An Obsession with the Hindquarter. We did. And we wrote these really beautiful books. We, wrote an, we won an IACP award for our book, Vegetarian Dinner Parties. We did. But even that had to change, right? Right, it did. The thing is that the market keeps changing, and it's one of the hardest things to learn is how to change with the market. And I'm not saying that we did it well, but we've had to do it, and we've had to go from writing the Google of cookbooks to writing really high-end, gorgeous books, and now we write 
I don't want to say this, that I don't want you to hear this as a bad word, but we write mass market books. We write books that are intended to sell at a low price and meet a very specific need. Our great editor, Mike, always has this question about every book. He always says, is this book the answer to a question someone has actually asked? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And so we have. The, the last few books we've written have all been with Instant Pot behind us. We've been writing books that help Instant Pot users use their machines, whether it's Instant Pot pressure cookers or even Instant Brand air fryers. Nope. We love to write books that actually help people that have good recipes and in the end that sell. There are a lot of people out there with hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers or hundreds of thousands of YouTube followers. We don't have any of that. And Instant Brands has become a wonderful partner for us, for the Instant Pot and for air fryers now to help us have a platform. It's just part of trying to figure out the market. I, some people get insulted when they when they maybe need a little brand help. Yeah. We're just not insulted. We're not insulted. And the other thing is, you know, before we did this, I was an advertising creative director and I had to hire creative people all the time. And yeah. I hired people who were easy to work with, who met their deadlines, who didn't <laughs> mm. complain about their work. Mm. And quite honestly, that's Mark and me. Listen, you have to be easy to work with. There are people who sell and whose books sell and no one wants to work with them. But they get publishing. banned from so many venues. They do uh, because they just are difficult to work with. They don't meet their deadlines. And I want to go back to this question about a question that no one asked <laughs> because I think it's actually revolutionary. The first time he started working with Mike German at Little Brown, he was not publishing any chef books. And this was several years ago. And chef books were all the rage. This is back in the days of the original Otto Lange. And Otto Lange's books are gorgeous. But I remember asking Mike why he wasn't publishing chef books. And he said, because I think most chef books are an answer to a question no one has asked. And I have to tell you, it made me gasp because it was like a revelation. I thought to myself, oh, of of course, you have to actually fit an answer to a question <laughs> to write a cookbook. A lot of people write me and say, you know, I have my grandma's recipes or I have this and that and the other and I want to publish a cookbook, which is really um, admirable. And I'm glad you want to do that. You should probably think about putting together a self-published PDF that you can give to your friends and family because ultimately, and this is the cruel fact of the world, so much of that is the answer to a question that most people outside of your family haven't asked. Yeah. And that sounds cruel. And I don't mean it to be cruel. It, well, it's not cruel. I mean, it's it's business, right? I mean, you write a book, you want 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, hey, 100,000 people to buy it. Honestly, are 100,000 people interested in your grandmother's noodle kugel? It's <laughs> my grandmother never made noodle kugel. But, um, <laughs> and I could tell you. Very few people, even in my family, were interested in my grandmother's noodle. And cocktail. I can tell you that I am very uninterested in your grandmother's noodle. Ugh, noodles with fruit cocktail. Just stop right Wait, now. and cottage cheese. Oh, stop. So anyway, <laughs> gross. Um, so anyway, it's, it's all a question of finding how to meet the market. And it's really hard. And I should also add that we have a really good agent. This is part of how we lasted. It's... It's kind of all important to the fact, you know, several years ago, gosh, no, longer than that, right? 20 years ago at this point, um, we got pushed by a publisher to jump to another agent and we got pushed to jump to ICM, to 
international creative management. And, you know, I mean, it was it would be a big jump for us. And in the end, even though our publisher was pushing us at the time to make the jump to another agent, we didn't do it because, honestly, we have a really good relationship with our agent. And that makes all the difference in the world. It makes a huge difference. If your agent will take your calls, if your agent will call you back, yeah. if your agent will have your best interest in mind. Yeah. And even if you're not the highest earning client for them, you still want to have a good relationship and you want them to look out for you. That's right. And we were just afraid of being very, very small fish in very, and listen, we've just changed based on the times. And I think that's really important to note. You know what? That's important to note for human beings. Mm. That's, that is something that goes way beyond just being cookbook authors and working in publishing. You have to change. You've got to grow at the times. As things change, you have to change. You have to stay relevant. You do. I, I read a biography of a guy, Bruce has heard me talk about this endlessly, Athanasius Kircher. And Athanasius Kircher may be the last medieval renaissance thinker before the enlightenment and this guy he wrote hundreds not really not really hundreds but tens of giant tomes on all different kinds of subject matter he was totally pre-enlightenment he knew nothing about the rational age and ultimately what he did is he collected this cabinet of curiosities in the vatican and they were all kinds of things that he claimed he was wrong they claimed to be able to translate egyptian hieroglyphics he claimed all this stuff he was wrong 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 about so much he had a cat piano believe it or not in which he put live cats in a piano and when you press the keys of the keyboard barbs hit their tails and they screamed and he claimed he could play tunes on this thing i'm not making this up anyway the whole point of this is that there came a moment in which the world changed and galileo came along and poor athanasius kircher was still pointing to his cabinet of curiosities in the vatican and everybody else was saying hey uh we're over here looking at the moon's go around jupiter <laughs> that galileo but i have a cat piano yeah but i have a cat piano but i have <laughs> egyptian hieroglyphics that are wrongly translated and he just insisted on not coming into the enlightenment and the age of rationalization and it's it was just kind of tragic in it in the end and but you're still talking about him we so are. that is interesting we right are, there that is we interesting are, but when i read this book a man of misconceptions about him it changed my whole notion about how we do business i thought i said to bruce i don't want to be the guy who still got his cabinet of curiosities and while everybody else is looking at the moons going around jupiter i don't want to be that guy and i think everybody needs to think that way whether you're 20 going on 30 40 going on 50 or 80 going on 90 stay relevant Know how to use technology, take more courses, learn another language, stay friends with people who are younger than you, yeah. and just change with the times. We have a friend who's almost 80 who's on WhatsApp, and I think that's actually admirable. I mean, I'm not on WhatsApp, but she is. And listen, it she is absolutely kept up, and she has no fear of the technological revolution that has happened, and I think that is a gorgeous attitude to have. It is. Otherwise, you're going to feel lonely. You're going mm. to be left behind, and mm. no, you don't need to write 39 cookbooks into your 80s and 90s, but you want to stay relevant, mm -hmm. you want to stay alive, mm -hmm. and you want to stay active. And you don't want to have a cabinet of curiosities while people are looking at the moons going around Jupiter. You just don't want to be that person. Okay, up for segment two. Every week, we're going to give you a one-minute cooking tip. What is it, Mark? 
it is that the best scrambled eggs are made low and slow. I know. If you are a chef, you go in the kitchen, you turn that burner on high, you crack those eggs into that pan, you have scrambled eggs in five seconds. Well, that's the joy of scrambled eggs. You heat the pan, you they cook in three seconds, and you're done. But the best scrambled eggs take 10 to 12 minutes because you have do. the flame on as low as possible. It's barely even warm. And as you stir those beaten eggs and stir and stir and don't ever stop stirring, they come together into this creamy custard that's savory and rich. The best scrambled eggs you have ever had. That's right. So if you want to make the best scrambled eggs, you don't have to go to the 20-minute mark. Just turn the burner down to low and stir constantly. They will be far better than scrambled eggs made over medium or medium-high heat. Hey, I want to take a minute now to please ask you to subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating. Just go right down below wherever you get your podcast from, and there's going to be a place to give us a rating. Five stars. We love five stars. And leave a comment (laughs) and talk to us and share. And connect with us in our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. In that group, you can find all kinds of fun and weird commentary, including how apparently to make $2 two-buck chuck taste like $80 Camus, which is not true. But anyway, that was reasonably up. And up next, the interview. Who's up? Our interview this week is with Sandra Gutierrez. She is a leading authority of cross-cultural cooking from Latin America to the American South. She is the author of The New Southern Latino Table and Latin American Street Food, just to name two of her many cookbooks. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you for being our first interview on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Oh, I am so excited and so honored to be with you. So you were born in the U.S., but were raised in Guatemala. Is that correct? I was. I was born in Philadelphia. And we moved to Guatemala when I was five. And who taught you to cook there? Oh, my goodness. I had two women who particularly taught me who were my muses. One was my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who was a socialite. And she used to cook all the time. And she had traveled all over the world. And the other one was from my dad's side, his aunt, my great aunt, who was a very famous caterer in Guatemala. So between the two of them, one of them taught me the French influence and the other one taught me all the world influence. You live in North Carolina now. Tell me how living in the South has changed the way you look at and prepare traditional Latin American food. Well, it's very interesting because um, when we first moved here 30 some years ago, there was no Latin American cooking influence in the South back then, back in the 1980s. And so what happened to me is that I started having a lot of uh, nostalgic feelings for food from Guatemala and Latin America, but nowhere really to buy the ingredients or do things like that. So I became enamored of Southern food and found the similarities between both. What are some foods that you were feeling nostalgic about? And what are the similarities? The first thing I was feeling nostalgic for were simple black beans. And we couldn't find black beans in North Carolina. I had to trek to a little store called Wellspring back then. It it was, you know, one of those places where you could buy beans by the little handful in a little paper bag. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I found the similarities with the Southern field peas. And all the wonderful, you know, um, Southern beans that I like to call them, but of course they're in the pea family, but the, you know, the black eyed peas, the butter beans. And I realized I could cook them the same way with a little bit of bacon, a little bit of herbs and the flavor wasn't exactly the same, but they feed, they, they fed the nostalgia. And you wrote a book about field peas and beans, didn't you? I did. I did. You know, they asked the university of North Carolina press asked me to write this book and 
when they said your theme is going to be beans and field peas, I thought there's no one better to talk about beans. Than me. <laughs> I find that fascinating that just in the 80s, you couldn't find black beans in North Carolina. When I think about the things that we take for granted, even just olive oil. I think even in the North back in the 80s, it was unusual just to find even things like olive oil. There were so many things that were that were unusual to find. They really were. You think that balsamic vinegar didn't become popular in the U.S. until the 1990s. I know. Isn't that? That's crazy. And now you have balsamic vinegar everywhere. But it was the same with Latin American ingredients, particularly in the South. We didn't have the large Latin communities that Miami had was the only center, uh, but also that New York and Chicago and L.A. have. There was really very little Latin immigration here to the South. So things like jalapenos, you had to grow them. You couldn't find them in the store. Mm. You could only find those little canned um, green chilies. Um, you know, that, mm -hmm. that you still find today. So there were a lot of things we couldn't find. And I remember that in order to buy cilantro, I had to go to a little Asian store in Durham and ask for Chinese parsley. And they were the only mm. ones who would carry it. But the nice thing in the Asian stores, you can always get it with the roots still attached. And there are, I know there are in a lot of Asian recipes, you need the roots. Exactly. Is that true in Latin American cooking as well? Yes, we use the roots. And we even use, um, when you look at other vegetables and things, we use the roots of uh, many things like the uh, chayote squashes. We use the roots. The roots are actually like large potatoes. They're even sweeter than the chayote itself. So yes, the cilantro, I remember being able to find the roots. Uh, you could make pastes with it, add it to your moles. Um, the, in a very similar way that, that Thai people will add them to their curries, for instance. Mm -hmm. And that's one of my complaints now when I go to, to stores is why do they cut the base of the herbs to the point where you don't get almost anything other than leaves? You started this food writing journey about 10 years ago. Isn't that correct? No, I actually started in the 90s because I was a columnist in the Cary News here in North Carolina. I was the first Hispanic to ever be hired in the South that had her own column. That's brilliant. That's really wonderful. And what, what kind of things did you write about? Ingredient-based cooking or historical recipes or, you know, I would find... Um, somebody interesting to interview. I did a lot of book reviews. So I started as a generalist yes. and it wasn't until a few years into my writing that I got brave enough to write about first Southern food, because by then I had already studied it and become an expert at it. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, I started writing about Southern food much earlier than when I started writing about Latin American cuisines, because I was so afraid that my readership wasn't ready. How did your readership accept you're this Latin American woman writing about Southern food? It was very interesting because upon my first week at the office, um, my editor got a call from a very disgruntled reader saying that she was very upset that a Mexican had been given the reins of her Southern uh, column. Wow. <laughs> and that offended me twofold. I love Mexico. But in Latin America, you are proud for your own nationality. We are not all one nationality. So it was like, wait a minute, I'm not Mexican. I'm from Guatemala. You know what? What's this going on? One. And second, I thought, well, you know, what about being open and diversity and all these things, which back then were not even in the spectrum of conversations. So that's what scared me. But what I decided to do is instead of taking it as an affront, I took it as a challenge. And I thought, I'm going to gain her confidence. I'm going to gain 
her respect by becoming an expert in something that I really am not an expert at. And that's why I started with generalized um, cooking. And about three years into it, I really had studied all the grades, had read all the books, had spent hours and hours in the library, had spent hours in my readers' homes asking them to teach me how to make the best biscuits, how to make good grits, you know, all these intricacies of Southern cooking. And so when I started writing about Southern foodways, People were reading me already for all the other articles that I was showing them. And, and then when I started proving, I did know what I was talking about, you know, or I, I did know what I was writing about, or like, I like to say, I did not write with an accent, you know, <laughs> it comes out when I speak, but it doesn't come out when I write. Uh, my readership grew tremendously. And at that point, my editor came to me and she said, Hey, when are you going to start writing about all these incredible cuisines that you promised to write about? We're ready. That's a great story. And it just says so much about who you are as a person, too, that you didn't take a front from that woman, that you looked at it as a challenge that that says so much about you. So that first book 10 years ago was The Southern Latino Table. Yeah. And that's so the first time you got to talk about this fusion, this cross between Southern food and Latino food in a book. I had been noticing that my my readers who were Southerners were already finding all of these Latin ingredients and were incorporating it to their dishes. And that was part of the conversation that I was having with them when they would invite me to their homes. It would be like, oh, look, and I have these chipotle peppers and I'm now, I'm now adding them to my barbecue sauce. And it would be like, wow, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm making tamales with grits because I couldn't find mazzarina, right? <laughs> And I was like, is this a thing? Could this just be a thing that I'm witnessing? By the time the book came around, I had already researched this new movement that I had discovered, in essence, that combined the love and the ingredients, foodways, the techniques, and the history of Latin American foodways, all 21 of them, of the countries, with all of the area of the Southern region. So it wasn't just a Mexican-centric movement like the Tex-Mex movement, for instance, or the California-Mexican cuisine that right. was most Mexican-centric. But here I was finding uh, people at home. At, at this point, it had not arrived to restaurants. People at home adding chimichurri to their barbecue sandwiches with mm -hmm. their coleslaw mm -hmm. you know, and, and making, uh, you know, pulled pork tacos. And I can relate and other people can relate. So I started following through with the trends and asking people to write to me what they were doing, what they were finding. And when the University of North Carolina Press came and said, we would like you to write the book on this, there was enough material for me to prove that this was a movement. And I got to name it. Yeah, it's really brilliant. What did you name the movement? I named it the New Southern Latino Movement. That's brilliant. And um, so they came to you to write this book. Yes, I actually had a proposal. You know how proposals go. You send a proposal for a totally different book yes. and an editor sees it and says, oh, you know, this chapter that you sent, yeah, how about a whole book on that chapter? In the end, it's rare that our books look anything like the original proposals. Very few people know what goes into writing a cookbook. People think it's the easiest thing to do. And there really is nothing like writing cookbooks out there, I think. Tell me about your experience with writing cookbooks. What do you love and what frustrates you? Okay, what I love the most is the research because I am a detective by heart. I love to go find the stories, the why we eat, what we eat, um, where the ingredients came from. That part of me, I think, is probably the most leading part of my books. The most frustrating part of a book is that the time that it takes to produce a cookbook. People think, well, not for you guys. You guys are the, the cookbook machines and I am, you're my heroes, you and Mark. 
but mostly, you know, a cookbook will, it's a really long process by the time you come up with the idea and you do the proposal and then somebody buys it and then you start writing it and edit after edit after edit after edit and photos, you know, the whole deal. So it takes a long time, anywhere from one to three years to produce a cookbook. I know it's kind of crazy. Now, the one thing that Mark and I have going is there are two of us. So we get to divide that workload so easily that he could be writing while I'm cooking and all that. And you're doing it all yourself. I am. I am. You're just one person doing it all. And it does. It takes a very long time. In fact, you just had a photo shoot, I believe, for a new book. So tell me a little bit about this new book. And then I want to talk about the photo shoot process with you. So the new book is for Kanaf. And it's an exciting new book that I'm writing on all Latin American foodways. I Do you have a title yet? I can't. I was going to say I can't give you a title because we haven't titled it yet. We're <laughs> going to work the title through the text. We'll see what okay. comes out at us. But um, I've spent many, many, many years working on this particular book. Um, you know, collecting recipes, doing lots of interviews, traveling. It's just a, a labor of love, but it's a representation of all 21 Latin countries. So it's going to be a very big book and it's not going to come out until 2023 because the exciting part is that it's the first time that Kanaf is releasing two separate editions, one in English, one in Spanish of the same book. Ah, congratulations. That's really wonderful. Can I ask how many recipes are in the book? Uh, we don't know the exact number yet, but I will say a lot, more than 250. <laughs> you didn't shoot every recipe in the book, did you? No, we didn't. Uh, it, it's too many to, to shoot, but uh, we had, um, I think, about eight days to work and we shot, I would say, maybe three, four dozen. That's a lot, even in eight days. And from what I saw following you on social media with the shoot, you had a lot of help in the house and that was so wonderful to see. How did you manage during COVID to get help in the house for the photo shoot? I needed somebody to help me cook because they wanted me on set. I needed to be food styling as well. Uh, I was the only one who knew what the food had to look like, because that's the kind of book that this one is. Yeah. And um, I called a couple of my friends that I worked with at a Southern season when the Southern season had a cooking school. So I called a couple of my friends who were leads, um, for the cooking classes there. And they said, oh, we'll come and help you. And the first day when they came and they saw the amount of work that was going to happen, they got on the phone and called all of our other friends and said, who can come? And they all volunteered to come and help. So I never knew in the morning at seven o'clock in the morning, who was going to show up. And there were days when there were three of us and there were days when there were eight of us. That also says so much about who you are, that everyone is willing to come help you. You're delightful to be around. You're charming and your food's great. Sandra, thank you so much for being on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Do you have a website that we can follow what you're doing and what's happening with your book? Mostly people can follow me at Sandra Latinista on all social media. And that's where they're going to find most of the news about the book. Cool. Well, we are going to follow. We're going to watch what happens. We are waiting for the book to come out with bated breath. And thank you so much for being on with us. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. And big hugs to you and Mark. And I hope to see you soon. Great interview, Bruce. I'm glad that Sandra was on. Fabulous stuff. Great to keep track of her. Watch out for her on Facebook, Instagram. Watch what she's doing because she's a force of nature. So this is the last segment of our podcast. It's the last department in our department store, and it's a new feature called What's Making Us Happy This Week. So both of us have something to say. Neither of us knows what the other one is going to say, and we're going to see if we say the same thing. So in food, what's making us happy this week? Bruce, you're up first. What is making me happy is dark 
milk chocolate. 65% dark milk. If you didn't know that milk chocolate can now be a dark, high cocoa content, it's been around for a few years. It's really starting to happen more and more. I love this high-end called Bonat, B-O-N-N-A-T. You get a 100-gram bar for about eight or nine bucks. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, it's expensive oh, stuff. This is ow. really high-end stuff. Oh. But, and they make four kinds. You didn't tell me you were cashing our IRAs out for that. <laughs> they make four kinds of dark milk. They're all 65%. One, the cocoa beans are from Mexico. Two are from Indonesia. Um, they are just so delicious. And where do you get these things? I get them from a place called The Cocoa Store, which is in New York City. And they will ship. If you spend 50 bucks, which is just five bars, they'll oh, ship for free. Oh, Okay, no wonder it's making you happy. Holy <laughs> crow. All right, what's making me happy this week is cucumber tonic water. If you don't know about it, Fever Tree makes a line of fabulous tonic waters, tonics, right, for gin and tonics. And the best gin and tonic is made with their cucumber tonic. It's basically tonic with all the herbalness that tonic is plus the flavor of cucumber. And I'm going to tell you, when you mix that with gin in a glass with a little slice of lemon or a twist and a couple ice cubes, wow, that is the best gin and tonic I have ever had. I had one the other night and I was posting on Facebook and people were pointing out how many typos were in my <laughs> posting. And I thought, well, it's got to be how much I'm drinking because of cucumber tonic from Fever Tree. And I should note, Right up front, Fever Tree has nothing to do with this podcast. And just like Bonat Chocolate doesn't. But let me say something about that that tonic, that if you're using that tonic, you probably want to go with a real simple gin, right? You yes, don't you want do. to use a really super floral because you want the flavor of that cucumber tonic to come out. I also want to say that I am thrilled to see that you have evolved from your diet Schweppes. Oh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I liked my diet Schweppes. This is more calories and more time on the cross trainer, so be quiet. So anyway, that's it. That's the show. Those are our segments. And we hope you enjoy the new format of Cooking with Bruce and Mark and that you'll come back for each episode. And again, share the episodes. Tell your friends about Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And we will be back with more what we like, more cooking tips, and more interviews on Cooking with Bruce and Mark.